Hi, it's Jenny Nash, founder and CEO of Author Accelerator. I'd like to share with you a mini magazine we made called How I Built My Book Coaching Business. It's a story of Suzette Mullen, who went from being a lost lawyer and an empty nest mom to a writer with a book deal and a book coach with a thriving business. It's an inside look at how you can totally change your life with story. Just head over to bookcoaches.com backslash how I built. That's bookcoaches.com backslash how dash I dash built. You'll also see there an invitation to a free event with me and Suzette where we're going to talk about her journey. I'd love for you to join us. Is it recording? Now it's recording. Yay. Go ahead. This is the part where I stare blankly at the microphone and try to remember what I'm supposed to be doing. All right, let's start over. Awkward pause. I'm going to wrestle some papers. Okay. Now one, two, three. Hey, welcome to the Hashtag Am Writing Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about writing all the things. Short things, long things, query things, fiction things, nonfiction things, poetry. This is where we write all the things. I don't personally myself write, write poetry, but who knows? Maybe that'll happen someday. I'm Jess Leahy. I'm the author of The Gift of Failure and The Addiction Inoculation, and I've been a writer at uh, The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and uh, yeah, that's the. And I spend a lot of my time out on the road speaking about what I do. If you're just joining us for the first time, it's not normally just one person. Uh, my co-hosts are Serena Bowen and KJ Delantonia. Um, everyone's sick this week, so I'm the only one uh, phlegm-free enough to actually produce the podcast this week. So you get me. But I have wanted to talk about um, this particular topic for a while now. We've talked about in the past, we've talked about shiny objects, the lure of shiny objects, the lure of the job description or the post at the big fancy national newspaper or whatever the thing is. Like, do you actually want to write the thing or do you want the shiny all the shiny things that go along with the thing. And we've all been victims of this in the past. Um, you know, look, writing for the New York Times is is a really big deal. It was, you know, for me, writing for The Atlantic, for me in particular, was a massive, big, shiny, um, big, fat deal because I had applied for an intern, an unpaid internship there right out of college and didn't even get a letter back, didn't even get an interview, didn't get anything, total silence. So for me to go back to The Atlantic and have sort of my very early success there was a massive shiny object. And it's a good thing that I really loved it at the same time. But some of the time, sometimes those shiny objects are going to come along as things that maybe aren't perfect for you at that time, um, aren't really what you're supposed to be doing with your time, may it even be a distraction from something else you're supposed to be doing, but it's such a shiny object that it's difficult to look away. It's, you know, you want to look into the the light of that bright, shiny object, even if it's just reflected light, you know. it's There is a difference when you call up someone for an interview and you tell them that you're from the New York Times at the Atlantic versus, you know, uh, a small town newspaper. That's just the reality of things. And so there is some reflected light that comes back on you. That's a part of my bio now. So here's the deal. When we talk about shiny objects, when we evaluate 
whether or not we should take a writing gig. Essentially, what I want to talk about today is what I think about when I think about a job offer or a job that I might potentially want to go for. Because here's the reality of things. If you pitch something to someone, you better be willing or excited even to do it if it gets taken. But sometimes we get so excited about the pitch and how brilliant our pitch is that we don't stop to think about whether or not we actually want to write the thing. So I had a job offer recently. It came as a complete surprise. This is sort of what's been prompting this. I've wanted to talk about evaluating whether or not a job offer, no matter how shiny, no matter how lackluster even, is right for you at that time. So the considerations, what I think about when I think about a job offer. And I have been sitting on this one for a while because when I uh, commit to do something, I want to be able to commit to doing it 100% with all of the weight of my enthusiasm. I have learned over a long writing career now that uh, the things that do best for me are things that I am really passionate about. I've joked in the past that my most popular piece of writing ever on my blog, on my website, was a piece I wrote on a day when I sat down and said, okay, no, this is just for me. I have to, this is not for a deadline. This is not for an editor. This is just for me because I really needed to remember why I love to write and what it is about writing that just gets me so worked up inside. And that piece about teaching kids to use the washer and dryer by writing the instructions for using the washer and dryer all over the outside of them with a dry erase marker uh, ended up being the most popular thing I've ever written. The the washer and dryer company got in touch with me and wanted to use it for some advertisements. And, uh, and I won't go into who that was because essentially they wanted to uh, just, you know, it would be good for me in exposure, quote unquote exposure. And they had, quote, no budget for that, but they are a major appliance manufacturer. So I do think they have a budget for some advertising. Anyway, <laughs> that piece is called Special uh, Care Instructions, if you want to take a look at it. It was really fun. But for me, the fact that it did really well was gratifying because it was something I wrote only for myself, just to just for the love of the thing itself. So when I write things like that, those tend to be the pieces that do best, um, with some exceptions, obviously, you know, as long as I'm writing about, you know, the concerns of sort of wealthy white parents, those, to, and, and there's a hook to it, there's some sort of like clickbaity hook to it that, you know, especially if it's about like getting into college, that's going to do better than, for example, a piece a piece I wrote on how um, prisons in the United States are not adhering to this, this law called PREA, the Prison Rape Elimination Act, and therefore juveniles were put in danger. Uh, and for some crazy reason, that piece about juveniles and prison rape didn't do as well as some of the pieces that, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I'm so worried. How do I get my kid into college? Rather than, oh, I'm so worried about all those kids I've never met before who might be raped in prison. Anyway, okay, let's get back to the point. I tend to get a little off the rails. And as I said, I'm I'm still pretty sick. <clears throat> the fact that I'm the mucusless one isn't saying a lot because we're all pretty mucusy. Okay. So as I said, I got a job offer recently. It came through someone else. I actually didn't even know, and this is unusual for me. I tend to research the people I'm about to talk to. Like if you want to interview me for something, if you're asking me to come on your podcast, you better know I have researched the heck out of you before you show up on my screen in a Zoom call or whatever. So a colleague sort of got me in touch with an editor, and um, I thought that editor was uh, going to interview me about something. And I didn't. It, it didn't worry me that I didn't know what she was going to ask because I usually get, you know, interviewed about the gift of failure or um, you know substance use prevention, the addiction inoculation stuff. So I wasn't worried. 
So I got on with this editor, and she begins to realize that I haven't the slightest idea what we're there to talk about. And so she had to catch me up, which was she was um, getting on a Zoom call with me to ask if I would write for them. Incredibly flattering, right, to be invited to the party. And this is a big outlet and a big national outlet with a lot of potential work for me, and the pay is good, and, you know, all the things. It seems just shiny and perfect. And as I said to her, you know, it's... It's no big deal that I didn't know what was going to happen because I felt like the pretty, pretty princess being invited to the ball. It was great. But I did say I needed some time to think about it because I'd be going back to working on deadlines, working on articles, you know, having to balance the content and the, you know, how often it's going to get clicked, all of those things. Getting myself back into the headspace of being a journalist again, where I'm constantly thinking about stories. I constant, there are post-it notes all over the place. I was thinking back to when I used to write my column at the New York Times. You know, I had pages and pages of dumb and good and in-between ideas, things I might want to write about. I was reading studies all the time. I was on all the, you know, getting all of the studies early so that I could decide whether or not something was interesting enough to write about. And that takes so much mental energy. And and for me, do I even want to do this thing again? Journalism is something that was really, uh, you know, I was so fortunate to get to do what I did at the New York Times and the Atlantic and the Washington Post and all the places that I've had the opportunity to write for. But am I in the same place still? Is Do I want to be doing that again? And on what topics? So first thought um, that comes to mind is how do you evaluate whether this is something you want to do? Because once you've committed you're committed. And so obviously the first question has to be about the contract. I have to see the contract, right? Because as a freelancer, keep in mind with freelancers are a great deal for um, for news outlets because we take, we as the freelancers take all the risk, right? We don't get insurance. We don't get office space. We don't get, uh, you know, constant access to our editors unless, you know, we're bugging them all the time. We don't get a lot of the things. We probably will get some legal backup from the outlet if something goes wrong if someone gets angry, if someone sues. But then there are other considerations as well, as a freelancer especially. How much right do I have to write about the things that I have written about for this outlet? So do I maintain copyright of what I'm about to write about? So I mentioned to this editor that I have some books um, in the pipeline that I'm working on the research for, and she's like, great, this is a great place for you to try out some of that content. Well, is it, right? Because it could be, depending on the contract. If, and you know, this is something I have a conversation with my book editor, my literary agent about all the time. She doesn't have to read the contracts for these freelance jobs, but I love for her to look at them because at the very least, even if the um, the outlet says, no, we retain copyright of everything, which is essentially places like the New York Times. It was why I decided not to write for uh, PBS Parents at one point because they wanted, I loved writing for them and the editor was great and I really adored the production value of what they I put out over there. So in the end, you have, but but they wanted to retain all copyright for everything I write. Now, let's think about the implications. Like, that may not seem to be a big deal for you. If you're happy to write an article and let it go, and it's never yours ever again, and maybe, maybe, like happened to me, your, your essay may end up, you know, on the SAT, but... Keep in mind, I didn't. It might get sold to someone like, for example, um, the the people who do the SAT. But 
I didn't know that was happening. I didn't give them permission for that. I didn't have to. The New York Times are the ones that are going to give them permission for that. What if, like Rosalind Weisbert, so Rosalind Wiseman, sorry, Rosalind Weisman had a book called Queen Bees and Wannabes, which turned, which became, which she wrote about in a New York Times article, which then it went on to become the movie Mean Girls. Well, technically, technically, the New York Times doesn't have to give her anything for that. When she wrote an article about queen bees and wannabes, the text of that article became theirs. They purchased it from her for whatever it was that they paid her, um, whether that's a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks, it doesn't matter. That's that they own it now. So when Hollywood comes knocking and says, we'd like to write a movie called Mean Girls based on the content inspired by this article in the New York Times, no one has to talk to Rosalind Weissman at all. Now, Rosalind and I have not talked about the details. I'm assuming that she ended up getting something for the rights to this work. The New York Times doesn't have to, is all I'm saying. So that's something really important to think about. If you, for example, write an article that has a really great hook to it, and believe me, the people people in Hollywood are scouting. Scouts are looking for content anywhere they can find them. That's tweets or threads or, you know, an article somewhere or something on YouTube. They're looking for ideas that they can sell in Hollywood. And what it comes down to when you have sold that article to some national media outlet or even a local media outlet, it might just be that you have sold all rights to that thing. So just keep that in mind. And I've said it before, if you're an author, please, please, please be a member at the Authors Guild. I heard from a writer just recently, actually, who had a contract issue with uh, an academic publisher. And her, the fees she paid the Authors Guild to belong at the Authors Guild, and um, and if you qualify, it's a great thing to be able to do, cost less than the attorney's fees she would have had to, she would have had to engage an attorney in order to deal with the fact that this, um, someone was breaking a contract that that they had made with her. So there are lots of considerations when you're thinking about whether or not a writing job is right for you. So for me, number one, do I get to keep the copyright for these pieces? And if the answer is no, at the very least, have a conversation for how this has gone for other writers. So I happen to know Rosalind, and if I was really, really worried about that with it, the New York Times, for example, I would definitely have a conversation with Rosalind or with, you know, there are lots of uh, people for whom this has been a thing with the New York Times. Uh, the movie ideas and television show ideas have come from a lot of unlikely places. And uh, and I guarantee some of the, the shows you love probably either came from a book or an article or some other place where someone got an idea. And, and the other thing is, you know, you'll note, I have written for the New York Times, and I did, dis- and, and there was no budging them on that contract piece. They want to keep copyright. And I just decided for myself that I would be careful about what I wrote. And if there was something that I really, really thought had potential to be something, that I would have a conversation with my agent first. Now, that doesn't mean that I wasn't going to write it and publish it with the New York Times, because the <laughs> the leap between a good idea for a column and the potential for it becoming a movie is like light years distance apart. But it does happen. Look at Rosalind. So there are... Um, there's a weighing to be done here. It's not an automatic yes/no answer, uh, but I have had this this conversation before with my agent, and it is something to think about. The other thing that I mentioned after that, after the contract stuff, is you know just look at. Sometimes there'll be a duration, like for example, um, we, this is hours for 30, 60, 90 days. Because what happens a lot to me anyway is I'll get an email from someone saying we really like this article you wrote at X place, and we want to republish it somewhere, and 
usually what I have to do is look back at my contract because I've signed a whole bunch of different contracts with different outlets over the years. And uh, it's not unusual for someone to say, we like this article from, you know, 2005. Could you please, can we please use it somewhere? So you keep all those contracts, keep your paperwork, and then you have to look to see. Um, you may just have to say to them, I'm sorry, you have to go to X publication in order to ask for their um, their permission to use it. Or as happened to me recently, oddly, I, I'm not sure why, and I'm not going to mention who what this publisher was, but someone wanted to repurpose my article for something and for a fair amount of money. And I said, no, that's not mine. I don't own it. And and the person said, well, I've already gone to that publication and they gave me permission. And of course I was like, okay, but I'm going to need receipts. So you're going to have to send me those. E- I need the origin, those emails. So I was able to see the emails between the potential person, the pe- person potentially buying my work and, and the people who ins- that I wrote it for and sold it to the, who insist that it's not theirs to sell. And I ended up being able to sell it myself to this guy. And it, you know, it's now being used for something, which is great. It's fantastic. It gives, you know, it's a free paycheck for something you wrote 10 years ago. If It's a great gig if you can get it. But again, like I said, my one of my essays showed up on the SAT and I had the problem that what was interesting about that is they edited the essay in order to make it more difficult, more incomprehensible. And, you know, as a writing teacher, as a longtime writing teacher, you know, I, and as someone who works with people at the op-ed project about helping them make their op-eds even more clear. Like, how do we get to the point quicker? Like, who am I to write this article? What's my thesis? Where's the nut graph? All of that stuff, um, the the SAT people kind of eviscerated a little bit because they wanted things to be a little bit murky for the students. And so in my head, you know, would I have sold it to the SAT anyway if it was up to me? Probably. It was kind of a funny um, full circle moment for the potential. In fact, one of my students who had been my middle school student KJ's son, actually, by the way, her eldest, uh, took the SAT and I was on the SAT that he took. So his own English teacher, his own English teacher wrote the essay on the SAT. I mean, that's just really quite funny. But um, I didn't love the fact that, uh, you know, people would walk away from that essay thinking, wow, she really stinks <laughs> because it was so unclear. Um, anyway, again, I'm getting so far astray. My brain is really muddled with, with, the, with the snot at this point. So my considerations, the contract stuff um, and, and duration of how long it's mine, can I sell it to someone after, all that kind of stuff you have to think about. Um, talk to your literary agent if you have one, if you can go to um, uh, another outlet um, then have someone else look at it. But just think about these things. It, would it be amazing if your piece was ever optioned for a film? Of course, but it's, you know, just think about these things ahead of time. For me, again, um, the other thing is, is this shiny object so shiny that it's blinding me to the fact that I don't really want to do it? And that's a very real consideration. One of my proudest moments as a grown-up human being was saying no to an extraordinarily bright, shiny offer that came my way when I realized that the terms of the terms I would have to accept for writing that thing were just not a good deal. And my gut told me that it wasn't going to be a good idea to write that thing and to be involved with that particular project. And I was correct. I was, I'm very happy I went with my gut on that one. But it was also, it was a massively very shiny thing that would look so good on my, you know, on my little bio on Twitter or threads or whatever on my resume, but um, but it wasn't right. It just, my gut said it wasn't right and I was right. And I'm so glad I listened to my gut on that one. 
Do I want to go a little, what felt for me at the time when I started thinking about this piece, did I want to go what I considered to be kind of backwards, which seemed like such a pompous thing to say, but I've done that. I've, I've written, you know, biweekly columns and, and had to submit lots of stuff to, you know, all of my work to editors and have a, you know, a two hour turnaround because we're getting close to the deadline. Do I want to do that again? Or do I want to stick with writing books and focus on the marketing for my speaking, which is something I really, really love to do. Um, and it, you know, the pay in terms of it being great pay for writing for freelancers, it still is the way I research pieces would turn out to be a fairly uh, modest hourly wage. And, you know, back when I was writing for the New York Times, early on in particular, you know, I would do 20 hours of research for a piece that was paying me $100. And the math on that one just doesn't seem to work out very well. Um, So that was another consideration for me. I took it also, another thing I considered, um, once I'd had a chance to think about it and sort of I realized I was kind of deadlocked and I wasn't sure. And talking to my husband about it, talking to my kids about it wasn't really helping me move the needle in any one way or the other. There were pros and cons to both. I took it to a really trusted group of friends that I rely on for work decisions. They know my goals. They know what I'm interested in in terms of where I want to be next year because we talk about that once a year, like where we'd like to be. And, um, you know, they know what I want from my writing career. And sometimes people can remind me of things that I've forgotten myself. So don't, don't, don't overlook the power of asking people that you trust with those kind of decisions and not people who are going to blow smoke up your butt or are going to be as enthralled by that shiny thing as you are. One of the people I talked to about this possible position was so upset by the fact that I wasn't considering it mainly because this person was in a career position where this job would have been a dream situation for her. So I actually, there was a little weird, not animosity, we adore each other, but it's just, you need to ask people that don't really have a vested interest or a an emotional interest in your, you know, in that making that decision. So that was a really important one as well. And then I had to think about sort of the next year. So luckily, it's it was toward the end of the year. It's in the beginning of the year, this coming year. And um, KJ and Serena and I are constantly talking about our goals. And this goal, I had to see if this goal fit inside the list of things I already have to do. I'm one of those people who gets enthralled by the other thing. So for example, I'm if I'm supposed to be working on a book proposal, I'll suddenly out of nowhere want to write the fiction. And if I'm supposed to be working on the fiction, I suddenly out of nowhere need to repaint my kitchen. This is just how my brain works. So is this enthralling shiny thing the only enthralling because it's not what I'm really supposed to be doing? So take a very clear-eyed look at your goals. If you have a book coming out, you may not want to take on, for <laughs> for example, <laughs> for my own example, um, I was asked to write this column at the New York Times right when I was supposed to be writing my first book. And my agent was very concerned that I wouldn't be able to do both at the same time. And as it turned out for me, it was a really good decision. I was able to work out ideas. It kept me, kept my butt in the chair. Um, it was just a really good thing. And it was great for my platform at that time to be writing a bi-weekly column for the New York Times. It was really great. Uh, it was great for my speaking career. So I had to weigh all of those things. But the concern is there. If you're having to write your first book and you suddenly are doing your first journalistic output that's much higher than what you've been doing in the past, 
uh, that not, may not be a great idea unless you are very, unless you're like a Laura Vanderkam who is constantly looking at her time management. And if you, Laura Vanderkam's books, I know we've talked about them before, but, um, I know how she does it, for example, is about tracking your time. She tracked the time of like a thousand women and over in 15 minute increments and found out how exactly we spend our time. And, and when people say, oh, I don't have time for that, it's often that they don't perceive they have time for that, but they actually do have time for that. So Laura Vanderkam still uh, um, keeps track of her time. She tracks her time. So if you're a Laura Vanderkam and you know exactly how much time you have to do for this thing, then that's different. But as KJ likes to say, uh, the thing you think is going to take an hour is not really going to take an hour. Until you get really, really good at something and you know how long something is going to take. And even then, uh, it, you know, you're not the, often the judge of best judge of your own time, again, unless you're Laura Vanderkam. But what I often found was when I would get cocky and say, oh, this is an article I can knock out in a couple of hours. <laughs> that was always the one that I got stuck on. So I had to learn not to get cocky about these things and really take a clear eyed look at if, okay, if I'm going to try to finish the column that day, I don't know that I'm going to have the steam to also do words for that other thing. It's going to be too much. So you have to take a very clear eyed look and stick that within your goals for that year, within your scheduling for that year. Serena does an incredibly good job about of this. If you listened to our recent episode on our goals for this coming year. Serena's taking a very clear-eyed look at her goals and her time management and what she really wants from her life. And so that's that's something you really have to do. Finally, and remember I said I'm one of those people who researches everyone normally. So I wanted to know, what am I in for with this editor? I don't know this editor. I've never, I don't know anyone who's written for this editor except for one person and their friends. And so I needed to ask someone else. So I went to someone who, a friend of mine who knows everybody um, in journalism, and I asked that person to do some sniffing around for me. And she got back to me within a couple of days and said, green light, everyone loves working for this person. And I trust that, and I asked her who she asked, and and I all green lights all the way down the road. So um, I was good to go in terms of this is a great person to work for. You'll really enjoy working for them. Ask other writers who have written for that person. When it comes to, you know, some editors have just been around for a really long time and there's a string of people out there. And if you want to find out the truth about what it's like to write for them, you won't have to ask very far, uh, go very far to ask people because it'll come out. Um, the writing world, especially journalism, is a very small world and word gets around quickly who's easy to work with and who's not easy to work with when it comes to editors. Um, that's that's a It's usually not a secret if someone is awful to work for. So you've got to weigh that as well. If you're very, very, if, if you tend to write clean, that's great, but that's not always going to get you out of a jam. I have worked, I worked for one place when they were in transition and people were trying to stake out the, how to say this nicely, they were basically doing their own self-surveys to stake out their own power domain, their own domains. And everyone was having arguments over where the property lines fell. And I did not realize I was dropping into the middle of that, but I don't think I've ever done, a, Henry, it's not dinner time yet. I don't think I've ever done that many edits on one piece. And some of the edits were just so that people could put their fingerprints on it and exert their power. And that's not fun either. Um, so make sure you're, you know, you might want to ask around as well and say, is this place in flux? Are they, you know, is there a big turnover right now? Find out what's going on. Um, just ask around, beat the, beat the streets a little bit, ask some people. If someone were to come to me, by the way, 
even someone I don't know, and say, hey, I'm thinking about writing for so-and-so, I'm going to give you my opinion about what it's like writing for that person because, well, I've been very, very lucky and I've written for some wonderful, wonderful editors. Um, even if I don't like an editor I've worked for, I'm going to tactfully give you a coded way of understanding that you may want to, unless you really, really want to write for this place, you may want to um, take a, a wide berth of this particular editor. Writers will, generally speaking, tell you the truth unless they owe their life to a particular editor and their <laughs> job could go down the toilet if that edit, if it gets back to that editor. So um, the other thing is there's a lot of turnover. Keep that in mind as well. Um, luckily, this editor is a senior editor, but that does not uh, escape that does not make her escape. Um, you know, sometimes senior editors can can take their uh, buyout offers because senior editors get expensive. But I've also worked for places where all of my editors were much younger than me. I, I still feel very motherly towards some of them, uh, but they were my editors, which was weird. Or take a gander at KJ. KJ was my editor at the New York Times for three years, uh, four years. So it can work uh, and you just need to figure out whether or not it's something you want to wade into. And I do understand I'm imbuing all of this with a huge amount of privilege in choice. A lot of freelancers, and we've interviewed a bunch of them who are machines. They'll just, they'll write anything for anyone. Just, yes, you want to give me a couple hundred bucks for this piece. I'll write it for you about comparing these two peanut butters or whatever. Great. Um, not everyone has the privilege to be able to step back and say, is this a place I would like to write for? But if you do have that ability, think about A, Contracts, go back to all the stuff I've talked about at the beginning with contracts. Think about whether or not this is the right move for you at that time. Think about the reputation of that particular editor. And as I said, just need to start asking around. Go back and look at bylines um, under that, who would be probably under that editor. Sometimes it can be hard to figure these things out, but you're going to need to start talking to other writers. It's important to do this no matter what, to network with other writers. You, you find out all the good information that way. And be thinking about whether this shiny object is blinding you to the other things. I mean, and I will be the first to say, you know, the first article I ever wrote for The Atlantic, I wrote for free. It was a tryout. Um, and I will stand here and sit here, as it happens, and say, you know, no, exposure is not going to pay the rent. But for me, that article at The Atlantic uh, was, it was a tryout. It was an audition. It also happened to be the piece that went viral. It all hap also happens to be the piece that led to the book, The Gift of Failure. But that also put me in a much better negotiating position later on. So I'm, I don't regret that I wrote that piece, um, the first piece, Why Parents Need to Let Their Children Fail for free. Um, would I do that today? Probably not. There are a few places I know of um, that consistently can get authors to write for free in conjunction with speaking engagements, but that's a little bit different, but not always. And, and still, frankly, I don't know how they get away with it. But anyway, I digress. So think about the things that I've, that I've talked to you about, whether or not it's a super shiny, um, offer or it's just a job offer for another, you know, a hundred bucks a week so that you can make ends meet. All of these considerations have to be taken into account when you're possibly going to write for someone someplace new. And do do not take any of my advice about contracts as any kind of legal advice. While I went to law school, I barely made it through, um, knew I wasn't going to be a lawyer when I went through law school, knew I was going to be a teacher. So I just, you know, it's been a long time. I also never took the bar. So definitely not legal advice. 
um, but it's what I've learned from talking to my own my own agent and other writers about the contracts that they have. So um, feel free to find, you know, there are other places, um, uh, ASJA, the American, uh, American Society of Journalists and Authors is another place you can go for advice on those things. So until next week, everyone, look for those shiny objects. Definitely keep reaching for those shiny objects. They're shiny for a reason. But have the wherewithal to think about what's best for you when you decide whether or not to accept a shiny object in your life. So until next week, everyone, keep your butt in the chair and your head in the game. Hashtag AmWriting podcast is produced by Andrew Perella. Our intro music, aptly titled Unemployed Monday, was written and played by Max Cohen. Andrew and Max were paid for their time and their creative output because everyone deserves to be paid for their work.